0: Hi, I'm Connie Loises.
1: And this is Alex Gove.
0: And this is Strictly VC Download. Dear listeners, it is Friday, May 28th. We hope you are about to embark on a long and restful, but also fun, long Memorial Day weekend here in the U.S. If you are listening from elsewhere in the world, we hope you are also in for a great weekend. We're trying to wind things down over here, so we are just going to keep things short and sweet and then jump right into this week's interview with featured guest Jameson Hill of Base 10 ventures. If you don't know Hill, we're guessing that you will enjoy learning about him. After logging a couple of years at McKinsey before joining Bain Capital for nearly seven more, he recently joined Base 10 Ventures to lead a really interesting new growth fund. That sounds like it could be very good for Base 10, but also good for students across the country. We wouldn't be surprised to see other funds follow suit quickly. We'll explain more in a bit. But first, the news.
1: The money was certainly flowing fast and furiously in startup land this week. Consider Greg, a 15-month-old New York-based outfit that just raised $15 million from the likes of Index Ventures and First Round Capital. Not bad for an app that tells you when to water your houseplants. Or there's Schmooze, which recently closed on a seed round to build a dating app based on memes. Schmooz claims that it combines machine learning and memes to connect people based on what it calls a humor algorithm. Of course, the non-fungible token craze shows no signs of slowing down. Infinite Objects, which makes physical display frames for NFT videos and photos, just announced that it has raised a seed round of $6 million from Quartzide VC and Crypto Kitty's startup Dapper Labs. And then there's Paparazzi, which lets you create a profile of yourself to which only your friends can post pictures, presumably of you. According to Forbes, this self-styled anti-Instagram is raising a $20 million Series A led by Benchmark that could value the company at up to $135 million. Ernst & Young estimates that venture funding in the first quarter of this year hit $64 billion, the highest amount ever for a single quarter, and equal to 43% of all the venture money raised in 2020. If this recent crop of startups is any measure, look for Q2 to take the venture funding title in a walk.
0: In other news, in case you hadn't noticed, SPACs are losing momentum fast. It's been happening over several weeks and a new development could really gum up the works for these special purpose acquisition vehicles that are basically pools of money that are raised to subsequently take public some company that might struggle to stage a traditional IPO, often because it's too young or its business offering is still being worked out. So what's going on? Well, Virgin Galactic, the poster child of the SPAC movement, was just slapped with a lawsuit by an investor who claims he lost money when the space tourism company recently announced that it would restate its results. Why restate its results? Because of SEC guidance issued in April around the accounting treatment of warrants, which are basically contracts that give their holders the right to purchase more shares of a company in the future at a good price. They're deal sweeteners, essentially. And the SEC thinks they've been spread around a little too generously by the management teams trying to raise money for their specs. In fact, this spring, the SEC said that instead of equity instruments, warrants might be considered liabilities instead, and now more than 800 SPACs are busily restating their warrants as a liability, and Virgin Galactic was not immune, which brings us back to this lawsuit. After announcing it would have to restate its 2020 results, Virgin saw its shares drop 9%, and the investor who's suing the company alleges that the company and its executive team knew the results they were reporting were wrong and caused him to lose money. His complaint alone would be a nothing burger, but his team is seeking class action status for their lawsuit. And if they get it, a lot of SPACs could conceivably be roped in, given that they, too, have made or are considering making similar restatements. Would it be the nail in the coffin for SPACs? That isn't clear, but it would be another knock against them at a time when they're already falling out of favor fast, including because individual investors have been getting burned on the offerings and over fears that rising inflation will force the Fed to end its easy money policies sooner than hoped. Christy Marvin, the founder of SPAC Insider, tracks SPAC activities closely as anyone. And as she told us in a recent conversation. Last year, the conditions were perfect for SPACs to take off. This year, there's the perfect conditions for SPACs to take a pause. She says not to read too much into what's going on. As far as she can tell, it's probably a blip. The market's sort of a breather. But I think the thing to keep in mind is that breathers are healthy. The market can't go straight up constantly. When we saw that in the first quarter, and SPACs are typically a very cyclical asset class anyway, so anybody who has enough experience in SPACs will tell you that we've seen down cycles before. It's normal, it's healthy, it's actually good for the market.
1: Up next, our interview with Jameson Hill of Base 10 Ventures. But first, a word from our sponsor. NFTs are literally everywhere, but after taking the art world by storm, prices of NFTs have plunged about 70% from their high point in February. While the NFT craze might be dying down, the online art market is just heating up. That's because investing platforms like Masterworks.io are securitizing blue-chip works by the best-selling artists of all time and making them available for everyday investors. It's no wonder that art has been a preferred investment of the ultra-wealthy for centuries. And, for the first time ever, you can diversify your portfolio with art at a fraction of the entry point. Visit masterworks.io to learn more and join an exclusive community investing in blue-chip art. Again, that's masterworks.io.
0: our interview with Jameson Hill, one of a still small number of black venture capitalists and someone who we were especially thankful we were able to talk with this week, which marks the one year anniversary of the death of George Floyd at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer. Floyd's death last year had sparked outrage anew over the police brutality and racism that people of color suffer daily in the U.S. It also sparked interest anew in addressing systemic racism in the startup world where investors and founders have long been predominantly white and male. One question we had was how much had changed in the last year. And Hill offers hope because he says he is seeing change firsthand. He's also in a position to make a real impact as the head of a new growth fund that's funneling half of the fund's profits into historically black colleges and universities to help beef up their endowments. That's important. HBCUs are largely responsible for the nation's black middle class, and the larger their endowments, the more they can do for students, as with any school. Indeed, the mission makes so much sense that founders of even the most sought-after companies are suddenly making room for it in their financing rounds. We talked with Hill about his background and that fund called the Advancement Initiative yesterday morning. I'm so glad to be talking to you because I really enjoyed talking with you earlier this week and I thought that your story was really interesting. If we can maybe just back up a bit, we started with you deciding last spring to leave Bain Capital Ventures after the murder of George Floyd. You have said it was really impacted you deeply. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became a venture capitalist in the first place?
2: Absolutely, Connie, happy to talk about that. So I started my career as a consultant at Bain & Company. I had attended Harvard, and while I was at Harvard, did an internship at Google, and that was my first introduction to technology and the world of Silicon Valley. I was on their Mountain View campus, and so taking the Google bus down every day, I thought it was a wonder world, and decided I wanted to build a career in technology, but graduating with a history and literature degree felt like it made more sense to go out and learn some real business skills. And so that's what led me to a few years at Bain & Company. After I'd spent a few years there, felt it was time to try my hand at a startup. And so joined Bonobos as an early employee and really helped to build out the analytical infrastructure across the company. At the time that I was joining, the company was crossing the threshold from being an early stage company to being a growth company that really needed to think deeply about how to architect its data so that it could be efficient when it came to things like marketing or retail. And so enjoyed my time there before joining Bain Capital Ventures, as you said, nearly seven years ago. Initially as an associate, working across a bunch of different verticals, enterprise software, FinTech, digital consumer, was promoted to partner and helped to build out our marketplaces practice. And so led investments in Winolo and Cameo, most notably, and was having an absolutely wonderful time there. Your identification around last summer, I think, was spot on. Barack Obama had been elected to the presidency when I was in college, and I used his personal ascendancy as a synecdoche for racial progress more broadly. I think last summer, that illusion came crashing down. And I felt this real sense of, of hopelessness and despair. But what brought me out of it was seeing so many people react and talk about it in a different way and talk about it in a systematic way and talk about it too as it related to capital. And being a venture capitalist, that was what intrigued me the most was this idea of communities of color being desperately under-resourced for a long time. How can we actually direct capital toward those communities? So doing a bunch of research, what we figured out, historically, Black colleges and universities were an incredible vehicle To get capital to these communities and that they themselves were desperately under resourced. When you look at a historically black college or university, on average, they have $15,000 per student in their endowment. Comparable institutions have $410,000 in endowment per student. So that's a 27x difference. And so it felt like this was a set of schools that were both deserving of our help and in need of it. And so At the same time, TJ and Ade brought this idea of the advancement initiative to me, which at the time, conceptually, was just a fund for the benefit of historically Black colleges and universities, bringing them into the world of venture and technology. And it was intriguing to me because not only did it utilize the skills that I'd built at Bain over the last six years, but also my father is a proud graduate of an HBCU. And so I think it was December, I was sitting around the dinner table at Christmas visiting my parents and for the first time asked my dad about his experience at an HBCU and what it meant to him. And the thing that he said is, had it not been for North Carolina A&T, which is the school that he attended, he would have never gone to college. If you look at his life since North Carolina A&T, he landed a job two weeks after graduation. He stayed at that job actually for the rest of his career so 35 years, he met my mother at that job. That job moved him to Illinois. It was the foundation of our family's success. That was you know, the light bulb moment for me to say, this is something that I absolutely have to do because it almost felt like destiny.
0: It's such a fresh take. I wrote about it in TechCrunch today, which hopefully listeners will have read. Obviously, you have these HBCUs as LPs, but you're also diverting half of the fund's profits to these schools, and you're using a donor-advised fund to do that. Is that correct?
2: That's right. That's right.
1: Is that a carry of 20%? So you're taking 10% of that?
2: Exactly. So the way that the fund works more specifically is it is anchored by historically Black colleges and universities in the biggest commitment that they've ever made to a single venture fund. On that capital, we charge no fees and no carry. So they participate completely free of any fees. The rest of the 250 comes from Mission Aligned Endowments and Foundations. And there we charge our traditional fee structure, which includes 20% carry. Of that 20% carry, that would usually come back to the GP. Half of that, we are actually giving to the HBCUs who participate in the fund. And so that's how it works on a mechanical level.
0: I talked to your colleagues, Lucy and Laura about this, and they were saying that a lot of companies want to make room for this fund because they see the benefit. They are trying to figure out ways to diversify not only their own cap table, but also to make sure that the money that they generate for their investors goes to the right
2: place. Yes, that's exactly right. And the really interesting thing, and the thing that we did not expect actually, is that there were a few founders that we had conversations with who said, Not only does the fund do the things that that you just listed, Connie, but also it actually supports my long-term business mission. To give you a very real example of that, we were talking with the founder of a developer tool. And the developer tool is on fire right now, very popular, lots of investor interest. And he said, ultimately, my goal is to enable more people to make money coding. And so what your fund does is it creates more coders. And it creates more people who could build careers coding and monetize their coding ability. And so he said, not only does it provide a bunch of benefit in terms of getting capital to communities who need it, but it actually supports my long-term business mission. And that, again, we didn't expect to hear, but was just unbelievably powerful.
1: Jameson, you guys are in a very unique position because companies will probably be excited to take your money because it reflects their commitment to diversity. But are you also requiring those companies to adhere to certain hiring standards of some kind?
2: Yeah, it's a great question and a question that we talk about internally quite a bit. I would think about this first fund really as a pilot program, a chance to bear out that we could raise this fund, that HBCUs would be interested, that other LPs would be interested, that we could build a team, that we actually could get into some of the best technology companies in the world. And I would say on that experiment, we are doing quite well, but it's just the pilot. And so it is our hope to raise subsequent advancement initiative funds. As we think about this from a longer term perspective, we would like to have guidelines in place around what a diversity roadmap should look like within a particular portfolio company. But today, that is not a requirement, mainly because the state of diversity within technology is so sad that if we were to make that a requirement today, it would limit the opportunity for this fund. It would limit the market that we were going after with this fund and potentially not produce top-tier returns for RLPs. And really, the ultimate goal of this initiative is to grow the size of these endowments and help close the endowment gap that exists between HBCUs and their peers.
0: As you mentioned, you would be really hamstrung if you were trying to layer in these requirements right now, especially because there are so few growth stage companies led by people of color. Hopefully that's going to change in the next five, 10 years. Wondering what you make of other initiatives out there and how you would judge their progress over the last year. One thing that I found particularly interesting and inspiring was the edict by the late legendary David Swanson at Yale, who had told his money managers back in October that Essentially, Yale was going to stop writing them checks if they didn't do a better job of diversifying their investing ranks. I don't know what you made of that decision in the first place, but I'm I'm just curious to know if you're seeing progress that maybe I'm not seeing because you are in networks that I'm not involved with.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think because this is such a big intractable problem and a problem truly that has plagued our country since the beginning, vast inequality. It is going to take a lot of different approaches and a lot of different ecosystem participants in order to move the needle. So, I was incredibly excited by David's announcement. There's a fund that was recently launched by one of our close friends, Accru Capital, that is focused on getting individual underrepresented investors more representation in growth stage companies. One of the companies that I was fortunate enough to invest in at Bain Capital Ventures, Phoenix, actually reserved a sleeve of their Series C for individual diverse investors. And that model is now being copied. And Phoenix gets founders that reach out. I get founders that reach out asking how can we reserve a sleeve of our round for investors who are traditionally underrepresented. One of the questions we had to answer initially was certainly there's more attention on diversity inclusion, largely I think driven by the events of last summer, but do you feel it's permanent? Do you feel that it's actually going to to stick around? And when we see these initiatives coming from so many different places, that is what I think really gives us the confidence to say, this is not a trend. This is not a fad. This is fundamentally going to be built into the way that we build technology companies from here on out.
1: Jameson, I know that this is your first fund, but looking down the road, are you perhaps looking to invest in other VC funds?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. We haven't explicitly discussed a concept like that. I think our current view at base 10 is if you had spoken to us a year ago, we would not have had the idea for the advancement initiative, right? It came together incredibly quickly. We're very excited about it. It's a complicated fund and story. And so it is deserving of the team that we built and also our full-time attention on it for the next several quarters right now we are very happy where we are and focused on really making this initiative as successful as it can be and have no plans to launch any new products we will see what happens down the road but i think right now we are trying to be laser focused since we continue to be a relatively small team of investors Laser focused on not only ensuring that our advancement initiatives goes well, but also that our core fund continues the momentum that we're seeing there.
0: You've obviously know what you're doing based on your track record at Bain. Now you're in a position where there's going to be a lot of companies that are going to make room for your fund. So how are you going to decide which to back? I mean, you've already gotten investments in eight companies, including Attentive, a new bank, Brex, They're all unicorns, I think. So what is the criteria?
2: So really, it goes back to our HBCU partners, who are the folks who we really designed this fund hand in glove with, and understanding their particular set of needs and requirements. One of those needs were higher liquidity needs relative to other endowments, just given the size of their endowments. So that's what pointed us toward later stage growth. The other thing that we are highly sensitive to is because these endowments are smaller, we want to be taking growth stage risk and not venture risk. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of companies today that are valued like growth stage companies, but still involve a fair amount of venture risk. And I would characterize that as maybe having an unproven business model, having an unproven path to profitability, an unproven technology, something like that. And so what we are really going after are companies with proven business models, proven unit economics, where we aren't taking that venture stage risk, but are in massive markets that are changing and growing. And so even at the growth stage, we think that there's a lot of value to be had and to be accreted. And then we think also that these companies can continue to grow at impressive rates in the public markets. Because I think part of this is really making these HBCUs owners of the assets of tomorrow. And the assets of tomorrow are technology companies.
1: So, Jameson, what do you anticipate to be the average size of investment for the fund?
2: So, as a reminder, it's a $250 million fund. As we think about deploying that, our aim is to invest 10 to $20 million checks. The rounds that we are investing in are usually several hundred million dollars. And so, Certainly the companies don't need that extra 10 or 20. And so really what founders are interested in is the scholarships piece of it and the donation piece of it. It is the help with everything DNI that we are building. It is the help with recruiting all of these rounds are oversubscribed. And so despite the fact that our check size is small relative to the round size, it is still definitely a fight to get into these companies. But we think that we bring something so differentiated and so top of mind for these founders that we're still able to get in.
0: I'm just wondering if you have a thematic approach. I see a lot of fintech in there. You also backed Attentive, which you had also funded when you were with Bain Capital Ventures, which is a personalized mobile messaging company. How are you thinking about sectors?
2: Yeah. So fundamentally at Base 10, we actually leverage a lot of the work that we do at the early stage in order to aid our growth stage process. What that means is we start by identifying the biggest global mega trends that we think are reshaping the way that we live and work. Digital banking and digital brokerage is an incredible example of that because not only is it happening here in the United States, but it's also happening all over the world. And so that's what led to our investments in Wealthsimple and in NewBank, And then coming from that, we thought about if we are believers in this thesis, then where are the other places that we need to look? Infrastructure was certainly a big part of that. And that led to our investment in Plaid. It really starts with what are the big megatrends that are happening that we think are going to produce a massive amount of value all over the world? And then we have internal software that we've built that we call Base11 that helps us build that universe understand how these companies are performing relative to one another. And then we go out and we meet them and we have conversations and find the best asset in each theme and in each space. So that probably drives 75% of our investing. The other 25% is a little bit more opportunistic. And certainly our friends at growth stage firms who are really excited about this initiative will pull us into deals that they're particularly excited about where they feel that the advancement initiative could add a lot of value. And so fundamentally, it comes from this deep research process and is related to really thinking about where's the world going and trying to follow those trends and identify the best asset within each of those trends. So
0: this is very much not an opportunity fund, to be clear. Sometimes you'll be backing companies that have been funded by Base 10, but it sounds like not primarily.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think probably for this first fund, just for the sake of simplicity, we probably won't be following on into our portfolio companies, certainly that could come down the road. But right now we are just really focused on making this a successful first fund, focusing on growth stage businesses. And a lot of our our businesses in the base 10 early stage portfolio, while we certainly expect Uh, Several of them to, to make it to the unicorn status are just not there yet, given how young they are.
0: So this fund came together this year. You're going public with it now. Startups, founders are getting word of this. But of course, other VCs are probably paying close attention too. I'm just wondering, have you heard of anybody who's trying to do something similar, even if the end recipient isn't necessarily HBCUs, but other underrepresented groups, organizations that could use more capital?
2: We haven't to date. We do think that this is the first such effort and have not seen something like it in market yet. However, I do want to say that it is our goal and our aim to be copied because certainly there are more institutions across the globe that are deserving of capital that for a number of reasons have trouble accessing it we cannot possibly serve all of those institutions. And so we do hope that there are people who are connected to those communities who see what we're doing and get excited about it and want to do the same for those. We have big ambition too and would love to think about other organizations down the road that we can support in an authentic way in the way that we support HBCUs. But we haven't seen anything to date. It is our hope that we do. Good luck with your fund. I think it's so smart. Thank you so much, Connie and Alex. It was great to talk to you. you.
1: Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend.
0: Bye, everyone. Hope you have a lovely, long weekend. We'll see you back here next Friday.